morning. The scripture from this morning is Psalm 13. It can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Buenos días. El salmo, el salmo de hoy es el Salmo 13, al director musical Salmo de David. Flip over one page and turn to page 8 in your bulletins, where you see not only the sermon title, but also the uh, church vision and mission statement. Hold your place there. We'll come back to that in just a second. But first, let me say a word of prayer. God, thank you for this time, a blessing for us to hear from you. It, it really is a miracle, an unbelievable thing, that through your word, through your scripture, by your spirit, that we can hear your voice. And so thank you for speaking life to us, giving us clarity. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit and make this time profitable. Help me, God, cut through my jumbled thoughts or words. I'm your servant. Use me how you will. I pray that you would also then help us to hear and to listen and to receive. We pray this together with great hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started on a new series, a new sermon series on the mission of our church. A good time of year to remind ourselves what this church is all about Grace Meridian Hill. What are we trying to be? What are we trying to do as a Christian community in the neighborhood? And we're trying to answer that question week after week for the first couple weeks here of this fall by looking at different passages from the Bible. If you look there at that mission statement on page 8 of your bulletin, you'll see that our mission statement is this. Our mission is to build a gospel community that is spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, and beyond. Last week we looked at this idea of a gospel community, and today we're going to focus our attention on this phrase, spiritually diverse community. We aspire to be what we're calling here a spiritually diverse community. Well, what does that mean? It means that we're striving to create a healthy environment, an atmosphere where people of a whole variety of spiritual backgrounds and spiritual dispositions might feel welcome to be a part of this church, to be in our mix, to be in relationship with all of us. Which means that the goal isn't just to make it comfortable or, or simply easy for everyone, but rather the goal is to make it meaningful to people. 
to explain the gospel carefully, to do it through relationships, to work through the hard parts of what really feels absolutely unbelievable about the things that Christians believe and do. We intend to be a place where people seek Jesus and then actually find Jesus. What this means is if you're someone who is today exploring the Christian faith, maybe you come from a totally different religious background as we've had many people in and out of our community from different traditions, whether Muslims or atheists, folks that are Jewish or agnostic, Hindu, people from New Age backgrounds or just basic secularist kinds of backgrounds, or maybe you're just someone that doesn't know what you are, there's no label for it, but you're just curious, or maybe even hurting and hungry. Different stories, but whatever yours is, what this means is, as our mission statement puts it pretty clearly, you're not just a guest here. You're a central part of who we're trying to be. You, dear friends, are built into our mission statement. We're so glad that we can walk with you and you with us on spiritual journey together. Part of being a spiritually diverse community means being a community that is grappling with honest questions and honest doubts. And that's what we're going to look at briefly here today, this idea of doubts, as we find it in this psalm, this song, this poem, Psalm 13. And we're going to look at it in two parts. First, permission to doubt that we find here in this psalm. And secondly, prayers for our doubts. First, permission to doubt. Secondly, prayers for our doubts. Permission to doubt. Notice right away verses 1 and 2 of this great, great psalm. These words, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts one and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me. You hear the agony in the words, even the disorientation. These are, you might say, dangerous words. Four times crying out, how long? With not a little bit of impatience, you might even say. This person who is wrestling with this sense that God has, well, forgotten me. You're ignoring me, aren't you, God? Hiding your face from me, which is poetical Old Testament language, referring to the sense of blessings being withheld, that you're not turning with a glad smile, but you're hiding, darkening your face, your relationship, your presence away from me, leaving me to wrestle with my thoughts, literally taking counsel into my soul. All I have for a counselor is me. And I'm just stuck and lost in this internal, internal dialogue with many questions. When all the while my enemy seems to triumph over me, I'm just beat up 
and defeated. This is, don't miss it, a series of complaints that are being brought before God. It's almost an accusation before the God of the universe. In fact, we know that the author knows that these things aren't really, by faith, factually true, we might say. This psalm, as the first line says, is written by David himself, who wrote other psalms. In Psalm 9, he says, the Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And in Psalm 31, he says, let the light of your face, yes, shine upon us, Lord. And here he is saying, no, your face is not shining and the Lord has forgotten. This is what is called doubts. Doubts. When you find yourself saying, as maybe you're today saying to yourself, I can't believe this. I can't accept this. The idea of a loving God sending people to hell or all the injustices and atrocities committed by the church over the centuries. Or maybe the hocus-pocus, you might say, of miracles found in the Bible, and especially this idea of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I can't believe this. I can't accept this. And as I said, the words that we find here in this passage, they almost seem risky and maybe even unfamiliar to some who may have grown up in the church because we don't realize often enough that God gives you permission to doubt, to wrestle, to be in process, to be in agony over things that to you just aren't fitting together. In fact, think about it. If we're reading this rightly, that these are doubts, what we have here are divinely inspired doubts, divinely authorized doubts. God-endorsed questioning of God. How weird. How strange. And yet, in the words of Christian author Phil Yancey, in a passage like this, we see this. God seems rather doubt-tolerant, actually. In the words of older thinkers, theologians, John Calvin, way back when, wrote this from the 16th century. Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that it is, that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Pope Francis is coming into town this coming week. Going to shut down traffic. But these are words that he's recently shared himself on this topic. If one has the answers to all the questions, that is proof that God is not with him. The great leaders of the people of God, like Moses, have always left room for doubt. You must leave room for the Lord, not for our certainties. We must be humble. 
which is a quite different message from that coming from most religious communities, even Christian churches, where the message is, no, simply do not doubt, must not doubt. It means you're immature. Just believe, O oh, you of little faith. I believe it's printed. I don't have it in front of me what you have in your bulletins, but I was hoping to print the top line of this psalm. Really, it's a byline that the psalms include in the original Hebrew text because it's important to notice. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. David wrote these words. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the king of Israel, the nation's spiritual leader, the chief songwriter and greatest poet in Israel's history, this David, David the doubter. Mother Teresa, closer to our time, is often remembered for her, and rightly so, for her incredible sacrificial service. Service to the sick and the poor in Calcutta. But you may or may not know that she actually struggled a lot with doubts at times. We have some letters of hers that weren't discovered and published until after her death. And what we find in them, even unnervingly, is how much she wrote about loneliness, long spells of not hearing from God, and even doubts about her own faith, Mother Teresa. Here's an excerpt. Darkness is such that I really do not see. Do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me when the pain of longing is so great. I just long and long for God. The torture and pain, I can't explain such deep longing for God and repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. Saving souls holds no attraction. Heaven means nothing. Pray for me, please, that I keep smiling at him in spite of everything. If we take the words for what they really are, verses 1 and 2 actually are basically that. You've forgotten me, God. You've turned your face from me. My enemies are dancing on my grave. Dear friends, what are your doubts today? Can we start here? Do you know that God gives you permission to bring them to him? Yes, certainly if you are one that's investigating the Christian faith, maybe just starting a new journey or a new chapter in a journey, maybe coming back to the church after a decade away, Maybe after a period of resentment and embitterness, I don't know what your story is. You do. And even more than you, God does. But do you know that you can bring these things to him and not just those of you that aren't Christians, professing Christians, but those of you who are? Those who perhaps need the most freedom and invitation to be honest about those quiet questions that lurk within your souls that swirl in your minds, too often undealt with, unchecked, unprocessed. What are they? Those how long questions that you maybe have. 
How long, O Lord, have you left me hanging? How long before you give me peace with this terrible tragedy that happened? How long before you resolve this issue? How long before you help me understand this basic tenet of Christian belief better? Which is why the poetry of the Psalms are so helpful, that it's poetry, you see, because he's not just trying to explain it, he's just describing the experience, and what we have here is this little insight, and maybe this is helpful for you as you begin to process these things, that doubts sometimes are intellectual, usually actually we approach them as though they're intellectual questions or resistances to faith. But usually, deep down inside, provoking that question or what's really rumbling around in the basement of the soul is something more deeply emotional and experiential. An issue of injustice or suffering or personal pain. And I've heard it as I've walked with people for many years. When at first the question seems to be about suffering and evil and the justice of God or about predestination or about this or that different doctrinal thing that they want to discuss as the conversation goes on, eventually these words, yes, my brother was killed in a car accident 10 years ago and I've been mad at God ever since. Or, yes, I just had a miscarriage, and this is where some of those questions are coming from. Or, I just got back from Syria, and you just would not believe the things that I was forced to see and to put my hands to. Or, I work in human trafficking, and some days I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it. You see, because doubting is never just a matter of squeezing your brain harder, thinking it through, but a matter of coming before God. These are hard questions that need to be asked. There's a complexity to it that we ourselves cannot sift through and simplify not easily. We just commemorated the events of 9-11 last week. A reminder that even our experiences with evil in this world is a complex thing, isn't it? hard to sort through, and lots of really good questions that come up in the process. Step one, though, do you know that you have permission to work through them? Before God and dear friends, as part of our mission right here in this community, we're committed to that. We're committed to you. But we find more than just permission to doubt. In this passage, we find also in this psalm a little model for praying through our doubts. You see, because doubt itself is not an end in itself. The goal isn't to doubt, because doubt itself absolutely can and does lead to despair. This psalm shows us a different way, a doubt that starts there but leads to discovery. How do you do that? How, what way, in what fashion can our doubts lead to new discovery? What's the difference here? Three quick things and then we're done and then we'll talk about it some more. Number one, notice here that David, the author here, knew whom to take them to. 
He knew whom to take his doubts to. Look at verse 1 again. How long? Who? Lord. He's not just talking to himself. He's not even just talking to his friends. He's talking to God about these doubts. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Again in verse 3, look on me and answer, Lord my God. It's amazing how much when you wrestle with things that you're not able to sort through yourself, and all you do is kind of go around and around and around in a circle in your own head, and you say, well, there it is, it didn't work. When you haven't actually ever broken that circle and brought those doubts before God. See, that's what makes this so provocative. He's not just raising questions, he's bringing them to God. He's not just complaining, he's actually kind of bringing his complaints to God who can handle them. Who has answers and truth and a substantial history proven character. Part of which is the graciousness and mercy of a God who says, come and bring them to me. I'm here to listen. Do you know, friends, that you can, that you ought to, that you need to, maybe starting today, bring your doubts before God. Turn them into a prayer. Turn them even into an emotionally messy complaint before God, but turn them before God. And don't miss this too. This is a psalm that was written probably as an individual prayer or poem, but then unleashed before the community was put into the hymn book of Israel, their canon of great poems, sung by the whole community of faith, the whole nation. This was something that was shared before the community of faith. So bring them before God, bring them before other people. To whom are you bringing your doubts, friends? Your objections, your hard questions. Don't you dare try to deal with them on your own. No, no, no. Bring them to God. Bring them to your community. To those around you. This is going to be the greatest protection you have against devolving into cynicism of having a hardened heart that simply knows you're not quite there but doesn't actually do anything about it. Again, as John Calvin said about this passage, he says, yet by his very complaint he gives evidence of faith because he knows I may not have answers, but I know I have a God that I can go to for answers. Faith, even in broken, limited form. Take your doubts to God. Secondly, look for answers. And you say, well, of course, why else am I raising those questions? Because this, friends, when we're most hurting or when we're most confused, more often than we realize, the questions we raise tend to be rhetorical rather than a genuine pursuit of answers. We'll raise questions and objections. The question still remains, what are you really looking for? 
And if God were to tell you an answer that you don't like, would you be willing to receive it? Accept it. Verse 3, David says it straight up. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. He's praying for change. He's not just emoting. He's not just venting. He's actually starting to ask that God change his doubts. See, even in the language of verse 3, he says, Look on me and answer. Remember, just a second ago, he said, You ain't looking at me. You have turned your face away from me. How long will you hide your face from me? Now he's saying, don't hide your face from me. I don't want to feel this way anymore. I want to see your face. He's praying for change. That God would behold him. That he would sense that God is paying attention to him. And he's looking for answers. Look to me and answer answer. One really helpful book that I've read in recent years is a book called I Once Was Lost. It's actually a, a book that's written by some individuals that are, have been in ministry for a number of years and embarked on this project of understanding how do people come to faith in Christ? What has been the process, the story, the testimony for many people in the last decade or so? And so they picked up the phone and just started calling. Of course, they had a list of people to contact. People that recently became a Christian in this younger generation in this time and asked, just tell us what happened. And through that, sort of deducing what were the key factors and ingredients as people went on a journey from either total atheism or agnosticism or just pure unbelief to actually one day becoming a Christian and surprising even themselves. One of the key ingredients that these authors found in their study, in their interviews of people that were on that journey was that there needed to be a critical point when they're questioning actually became a personal searching. When their questions were actually something that they put their own heart and life behind, where it wasn't just, hey, well, hey, there are these issues and problems with the Christian faith, and what about this, and what about that, but rather when it became, I want to know. I need answers. This matters to me when the arrow wasn't just out there to questions at large, but rather the arrow of the inquiry of their soul pointed right back at them. See, again, because there are ways, and maybe you see it in yourself, there are ways to ask questions when you really don't want to or care to know the answer. There actually are ways to ask questions where that's all you want to do and you have the appearance of being interested, but really your point is to keep people at bay. Or even more so, to keep God at bay. David takes his questions, his doubts, and he begins to actually look for answers. Answer me, O oh God. Look upon me. Have you gotten to that point? Are your doubts turning the corner where you're not only raising them before God, but you're actually now waiting on him for his 
answer. And again, with the humility of heart to say, and even if I don't like that answer, well, hey, I'm going to work with it anyway. Thirdly, what we find in this passage is not only David knowing whom to take them to, not only David actually seeing answers, but thirdly, David anchoring himself in what he does know about God, even as he sorts through what he doesn't know. We don't know the details of the circumstances of what David was facing when he wrote this. Maybe there was a little enemy chasing after him. That was commonly the case in his life. Maybe it was some other point of suffering. Maybe it was something else. We don't know. That's what's great about it. It can apply to all of us. All you doubters, this is for you. But what we do find here is that even as he sorts through his doubts, at the end of the psalm, he turns his attention back to what he does know about God. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. There are some things that are not yet his experience, and yet he commits himself to it in the future. He says, I will sing the Lord's praise. I don't know if I can quite sing yet, but I will. And secondly, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. Here our translation says, my heart rejoices in your salvation. The Hebrew verb form can be a future tense type of translation, meaning I ain't joyful yet, but I'm committed to getting there. Oh my God. And what he rests his commitments in is what he does know of God, his unfailing love and the evidence that God has been good to me. All of his doubts rests upon this anchor point, the long history of God in the history of Israel and in David's life. Where even in this time of doubt, he's saying, hold on, but I don't know this, but what do I know of him? I don't understand this, but what do I understand? And I understand enough to know his unfailing love. I don't understand what's going on and I don't have all the answers, but I do know enough to trust him because God has been good to me. And for those of us that stand on this side of cross, there is no greater evidence and demonstration of the unfailing covenant, strong love of God than what he demonstrated in Christ in the cross. The one who suffered and died in our place. The one who offers forgiveness to those who cannot be forgiven otherwise. Jesus, who endured ultimate agony of an unanswered question, my God, why have you forsaken me, so that none of your unanswered questions would ever be fatal for you. Jesus, who has been good to me, 
What have you seen? What glimpse have you gotten of God? Whether if you've been walking in years of faith and trust and just happened to be in a season of doubt, or maybe you've never known God, but you still can see little flashes and evidence in your life, starting with the nature around you and the beautiful blessings that you can certainly count today, where you can say, yes, I trust in your unfailing love. He has been good to me. You see, because every journey of doubt that leads to discovery is always interrupted by these words, but I. David is doubting and doubting and honest and frank and even provocative with his doubts. But as he arrives at the final stanza of this, he says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Dear friends, do you know this God who honors where you're at, but also promises to bring you where he wants you to be? A God who begins and walks with you and calls a church to walk with you in your doubts, but also grants you a vision of his gospel, his goodness, most especially on the cross, that you might be moved from doubt, yes indeed, to a place of new discovery. The character of God, a fresh faith, of assurance. But you can only do it together, in partnership, in family, in community, which is why we're committed to being a spiritually diverse community, a community where together we are always, always praying through our doubt. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would make this a reality, make us this sort of church, help us to be like you. We do pray for answers for those that are wrestling with hard questions, even objections, but we pray that we might be a community where we can walk together, where people would feel welcomed in, not scorned or despised for the issues they bring, but rather loved patiently, as you love us patiently, as you walk with us, that together we might discover and see, even in the midst of our doubts, more of Jesus. That we might seek you and find you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.